0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the 4 Press Podcast, presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusek, and this week, my guest is Peter Costas. Peter is an on-course golf analyst for CBS Sports, as well as the coach of Paul Casey, and over the last several seasons, many other PGA professionals. He's worked a lot with Revian and some other players in the past. Peter's got a really interesting perspective on golf, because obviously, in his role for CBS, he is strolling the fairways watching from very close range many of the world's best players and he's been doing that for a long time. He also has a position in the 13th tower at Augusta National during the Masters and he and I have been buddies and known each other for a long, long time so it's always good to catch up with Peter and I picked his brain about the 2018-19 PGA Tour season that is now in the books. We chatted about what he will remember about the season. We talked also about uh, the way that the golf has changed in terms of how you need to be aggressive and how in some ways the whole idea of consistency is not necessarily a great thing on tour. We also talked about his beloved Red Sox and his Patriots and lots and lots of other stuff. So hold on just a moment for Peter Kopp. Hey golf fans, listen up. If you're looking for other awesome sport podcasts, the USA Today Network has got you covered. The NFL season has started, college football is in full swing, the NBA preseason is right around the corner, and the baseball playoffs aren't too far away either. Golf season just started again. It's all going on right now. The fall is the best. If you want to hear intelligent people talking about sports and what's going on right now, listen to Hemel Javari, Stephen Ruiz, and Evan Thorpe over at the For the Win podcast, which is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and other popular podcast apps. If you're into MMA, then check out MMA Junkie Radio. As a matter of fact, see all of the USA Today Network podcasts, including podcasts for the NFL and the NBA, by going to podcast.usatoday.com. And now I'm joined by Peter Costas, who is a smart enough man, a, a savvy New Englander, to not be back home in Scottsdale, Arizona. You are you're up in Maine, if I'm not mistaken right now, is that correct, Peter? Uh, Sir
1: Dusik, I am. I, uh, I tell people I'm Greek, but I'm not stupid. I, <laughs> I, I, get out of Scottsdale in June, July, and August, and now I'm going to stay in Maine and all of September as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the place to be. Do you actually play golf up there? Or once you get off the road with CBS, as you did back at the Northern Trust in August, do you put the clubs down and you need to, to sort of decompress from the world of golf? What, what do you do up there?
1: I, I decompress from the world. By getting in my golf cart, going to the range, hitting golf balls, coming back, going out a little bit later in the afternoon when the golf course clears and playing golf, uh, nine holes in an hour and 15 minutes, Heaven. that kind of stuff. And, and it's, it's absolutely spectacular for me. It's a great
0: way to decompress. So for people who may not know, you are a New England guy, actually. Where, where are you from and how, how did you find yourself in Maine at the end of summer?
1: Well, I was born in Maine. I was born in Sanford, Maine, and uh, uh, when I got involved in golf and realized that there were places uh, that didn't have snow in December and January and February, I went to Florida and uh, then on to Arizona in the early 90s, uh, and we absolutely love it out in Arizona, but we've always maintained a home here in Maine. Yeah. So
0: It's a, it's a beautiful um, spot.
1: It, it, it's the best of both worlds, no question.
0: So when you when you finished up the season – um you basically you, cbs sports wraps up the northern trust uh this year it's so earlier than normal did it feel odd to be finished at that time because typically you're going from around that time from the pga championship there's a couple more weeks and then you guys sort of hanging up and i know it's it's a long season for you walking a lot of golf courses did it feel strange for you to be done as early as you were with cbs
1: it It did feel a little strange, but i can I can tell you that I was ready for it because the way the television schedule worked out this year, um, starting with the Masters, CBS did uh, sixteen of eighteen weeks. So the only weeks we had off were the the two opens, the u s. open and the the British. Mm-hmm. So um, and we had nine in a row from the Masters to the u s. Open. Uh, so that was a pretty good stretch and uh, I think everybody was pretty well uh, fatigued from the weather from the from the work uh, the crew did a phenomenal job but I think they were beaten down by the end of the year so so it's kind of the ramifications that we didn't see of the new tour schedule mm-hmm.
0: explain so, to people who may not be aware what your typical week schedule is like I mean uh, on Monday and Tuesday you're not Typically on site. Maybe you've got some corporate duties, and maybe you've got some other stuff. But but walk people through how before the broadcast begins with with your duties with CBS. When do you typically arrive? How do you prepare for events? And what what is your week like?
1: Well, I will generally get there. There's a few weeks of the year where CBS has me committed to doing uh, cable. Yep. Because uh, CBS has to provide a couple of announcers for uh, Golf Channel. So, if like San Diego, our first event of the year, I had cable. Mm-hmm. So I showed up Tuesday night in San Diego, spent Wednesday doing my homework, getting prepared, learning the golf course, what changes had been made, et cetera, et cetera, um, and then uh, you know going to talk to players, and then Thursday morning, um, if time permitting, depending on the on the tee times and whatnot, I'll, I'll try to get out to the range and watch people warm up to get an idea of what they're doing go on the air, um, do the show, and rinse and repeat each day forward. So I generally uh, get there, depending on where we're flying to, if I can't get there real early in the morning the day before we're on the air, then I go in that night before. Mm
0: -hmm. And then when business starts for you on, let's say, a Saturday, if you didn't have Golf Channel or Cable Duties on Thursday, Friday, you get there, Um, CBS typically goes on air, let's say on Saturday at three o'clock, sometimes it's two o'clock, uh, Eastern time. When will you arrive and and how much prep? Because I have seen you numerous times walking fairways and such. And for people who may not be aware, you're wearing a utility belt that would make Batman envious. I mean, there is a lot, there is a lot of gear strapped, strapped to your body. When do you show up? How, how do you sort of prepare for that? And how do you guys figure out what groups you're going to be with, how you're going to actually cover the event?
1: Well, generally speaking, I'm going to be with the last group, the leaders. Um, there's a, a rare occasion that by the time we come on the air, the last group is playing so poorly that they're not in the lead anymore, so I may go with a different group. But, mm-hmm. but by and large, uh, I will go with the last group. Dottie Pepper will go with um, the next marquee group. Uh, could be group two, group three, whatever. Yep. Um, so we try to cover the, uh, the players that the people want to see. I will get there in the morning, probably around uh, ten, depending on whether I have to tape some some pre-steps, you know, like uh, titleist uh, features that the sales department has sold. Yep. Uh, that I have to I have to prepare, edit, and, and voice over and stuff like that. Then I go again. I go to the range, look at the players, go back, uh, grab a quick, very little bit to, to eat, and then uh, generally around two thirty. Uh, we head out to the golf course because we can't do much in the way of preparing. Uh, even those times when I'm in a tower, uh, we don't have access to our towers until 15 minutes before we go on the air because Golf Channel is doing their early show. Yep. So it really it really impacts our ability to prepare.
0: Do people, as you're walking you know. through airports, ask you about your kind of coming all to Biz Hub swing vision, <laughs> you know, as of the ticket booth or do you, how, how much grief do you take about that?
1: I don't. I don't take any. Uh, I'm taking more grief about the uh, RBC commercials this year. But
0: mm, yes, um, yes, You know,
1: I'll tell you. I'll tell you a quick story about how I came to wear uh, my monitor because Dottie has a person uh, walking with her, with her monitor.
0: Well, she so learned she, quickly. She only has
1: the belt on. <laughs> uh, but at at Charlotte, uh, when I was but it must have been 15 years ago when we started with this thing. Um, I'm in the first fairway. Uh, following Phil Mickelson's group and our, our producer who gives me generally speaking five to six seconds notice that he's going to do a, a swing vision. Yep. <laughs> and uh, I have to be prepared to do it on the spot. Yeah. Not having seen it before or anything like that. Um, he said, all right, Costas Mickelson, swing vision, go. And I look around for my guy who's got my monitor and he's about 150 yards down the fairway talking to this statuesque blonde behind the ropes. And yep. he's nowhere near me. So I have to do the swing vision blind. <laughs> um, I hit my talk back button. I said, just tell me when he starts to swing. So he goes, now. And so I, I ad libbed Phil's swing because obviously I knew it. Um, and from that moment on, I realized that I couldn't rely on a, on a local to uh, To be with me with my monitor, uh,
0: so well, thank goodness it wasn't Jim Furyk's swing. That's all I can say.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you know. Mikkelson, so anyway, you know. that's how I that's how I came to be uh, to be walking with it and carrying it, and uh, it's good. It keeps me in shape.
0: So now that the season is completed, when and we've all now enjoyed our off season, and starting, you know, the very soon we're going to be going into the 2019-20 PGA Tour season. We can take a little bit of a look back and. For most people, I think the Masters is going to end up being the highlight of the year. Um, it was, once again, it does what it does and it delivers tremendous theater, big name players, great golf shots, just just a, a fantastic overall event. Taking Tiger Woods' performance at the Masters aside, because I think that we're going to look back 10, 15 years from now and everybody will remember shot for shot what was going on with Tiger and Brooks and DJ and Ricky and, and the gang down there. What are some of the tournaments that you attended and you walked out, or, or maybe that you, you watched on TV that are going to stick out in your mind from this season?
1: You know, um, there's been much conversation about the new schedule um, and the, uh, uh, the four majors back to back to back to back. Yeah. And, and uh, the, the, the consolidation of the schedule. Uh, and one of the things that it's done is it's hurt some regular events in terms of participation by the big name players, because they have to take some weeks off somewhere. Right. Yep. But having said that, uh, it led to some of the most compelling, uh, golf and, and excitement from my perspective, uh, watching Nate Lashley win at, uh, Detroit, you know, watching, uh, Matthew Wolf in Minneapolis, a couple of new, uh, venues, but also tournaments that didn't have maybe the biggest fields in the world in terms of, you know, world ranked players. But I, but I found those tournaments to be, um, unbelievably exciting, compelling, good golf and good storylines. So it was kind of like the, you know, the, the, the antithesis of the majors where these small tournaments, um, and, and you saw big time stories for up and coming golfers.
0: It's it's a problem, I think, that the PGA Tour probably knew that they were creating because they're not dumb. They know if we're going to have a major championship or a big-time event, you know, the players in March, then the four majors, and then the FedEx Cup completing itself in uh, in mid-August at this point, you know, before Labor Day, then there are certain tournaments that are just getting thrown under the bus. And, and I don't know how you fix it unless you redo the schedule yet again, which... There are a lot of people who, who think it, need, it needs to happen, but, but there it doesn't seem to really be an answer to what do you do for some of the Texas swing events. You know, for example, um, I know that there's a, an okay field at the Byron Nelson, but obviously we'd like that to be better. There's an okay field uh, at Colonial, but we'd like that to be better. Um, there's some other events, you know, not maybe quite as much on the West Coast swing because it's early enough in the season. But there are some events that it's just difficult. The Honda felt like it was down a little bit this year in um, the field strength from what it was. Is there a a solution to the problem, if if we all sort of agree there is a problem with, with trying to get some of those tournaments out from under the bus, or is it just unavoidable with staggered major championships every four to five weeks?
1: Well, I think it's going to be unavoidable in, in the sense that, I, like I said earlier, uh, you got to take weeks off somewhere. Right now. My, my answer is, and I haven't, I, I full disclosure. I haven't thought this completely through, but, um, I was talking to a PGA tour official a couple of weeks ago and I said, you've got to create some excitement in those other tournaments, make them different somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I suggested, for example, in Dallas, look, it's a, it's a brand new golf course. Um, and, and some people love it. Some people hate it. It doesn't come across very well on television, uh, artistically, visually. Um, so, and it's in a very difficult to get to location. The the crowds are much smaller. What do you do? Well, you know what I would do. I would I would make that a shot clock tournament. I would I would turn that into a shot clock tournament with a golf cart and a big old uh, buzzer shot clock on on every cart on each hole. Make the players play in whatever you want. Forty-five seconds. Pick a number. Right. Let the gallery start doing what they did in Europe on a couple of times when they've done that, and then let them start counting down: ten, nine, eight, seven. You know, when the when it's getting close. You know, the hell with it. Break! 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 The it the, would create the, buzz it, if
0: nothing else. It would get people talking about some of these events that seem to almost go on in anonymity with with the yeah. schedule for sure.
1: Yeah, and or and take a couple other ones and. Um, you know, let it be match play on on the weekend. You Sure, have it be metal play, cut it down to if you got to do um, cut it down to sixteen players, make the cut just something you
0: know? just something to create just, just yeah,
1: exactly. you got you gotta create some excitement, some mm-hmm. some because we have so many seventy two whole stroke events that. Um, a lot of them are just going to, you know, be another, another long week.
0: Yeah, yet another tournament, yet another bunch of guys going out there, and unless you get some unique theater, and we had some of that. I mean, you, you talked a little bit about it when Matthew Wolf was was in contention. I don't know how many people were able to see, you know, Colin Murakawa. and I want to talk about those guys in just a little bit. But but there was some stuff there. JT Poston coming through again, not a household name, but a player who certainly earned his stripes, and it was. It was great theater. When those guys are winning, it was, it was really exciting. Who in your mind are some of the players that, that made the leap? I mean, we see this happen in lots of other sports where maybe a couple of years into their career, all of a sudden guys just sort of find themselves, and they become prominent players. And maybe they didn't win, but all of a sudden, like, geez, this guy or that guy is, is on the leaderboard a lot. Or we're, we're talking about this player more than we recall. Can you think of anybody that, that made the jump in your mind?
1: Well, I, for me, the biggest story this year was the uh it, it's kind of like the 2019 version of 2012 you know when jordan spieth and that whole crew came out of college yeah. and and uh burst on the scene and and now we got the uh oklahoma state guys uh the matthew wolfs and and and
0: victor hovland them, the, yeah
1: the hovland and and morikawa and all these guys that are really good players—they've been competing against each other since high school—and now they all popped out, and and now they're actually making Jordan Spieth and and Justin Thomas—you know—seem like elder statesmen, even though they're only in their their mid to mid late twenties.
0: Twenties, yeah, exactly. Are you surprised yeah, well, that, that Wolf and Morikawa won as early in their careers as they did, or were those guys? What, what little you probably had a chance to see them in person, was it clear that yeah, that's that's going to happen?
1: Listen. I... Uh, it's a different world now, you know, um, it used to be that guys came out on tour, didn't know what to expect. Um, they kind of had to feel their way around and, and earn their stripes and, you know, be quiet, pay attention to your elders. And eventually you can get to the winner's circle. These kids in college. Now they're, they're all ready to go. They know what they need to do. They've played against a lot of the people. I mean, these guys played with Ricky Fowler or against Ricky Fowler uh, when he goes up to OSU, they see how he hits the ball. They know how they hit the ball. So when they come out, they're ready to go. Yeah. And, and there's no holding them back. And and when one of them succeeds, the other ones say, Psh, "I beat him at such and such tournament. Therefore, I can I can win on tour too." So it it's kind of like uh, climbing the ladder. Each each one climbs over the other, uh, and they all end up on the top.
0: I was at the Masters practice round on Tuesday, and. Victor Hovland was out there with Ricky Fowler, and I had spoken with Victor a little bit earlier, and he was there as the U.S. Amateur Champion from 2018 at Pebble Beach. And and we all sort of knew that he was a really good stick, and he would probably be turning pro over the course of the summer. And I, I made a point of going out there and, and seeing him, and they came off of around the corner where I was sort of waiting to pick him up on 13. And I saw him hit his tee shot, and I, I saw Fowler because you can't miss Ricky's outfits, and uh, and Joe's bag that week was was pretty colorful. And then I take a look, and I'm like, oh, they're playing with Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson as well. And I'm thinking to myself, well, this is quite an experience for this kid in college. You no, know, I know that he is, you know, the top ranked amateur in the world, and and has got a lot of game. And Fowler, being an OSU guy, he probably knows him very well, and has probably played with him. So the the shock and awe thing is gone. But after the round, I, I said to him, what was going through your mind when you walk onto 13 green and there is Brooks Kepka, fresh off uh, you know, uh, of an amazing year and, and about to have an incredible year. There's Dustin Johnson. Um, so there's two world number ones right there. Fowler is basically a guy who's been around. What, what was going through your head? He said that was pretty much the only time that he had that sort of surreal, I can't believe this is happening moment, which I, I think anybody can understand. It's the Masters and there's Fowler and Kapka and DJ and here's little Victor Hovland you know from from Norway you know out there with him but that was the only time Peter that he told me and I spoke with him several times throughout the course of the summer I saw him at the Travelers Championship where he made the cut I talked to him and a couple others he he never gave me the impression that the moments or the situations that he was in were too big for him that you know he he didn't win okay but but the kid made cut after cut he putted, was timely, he hit a lot of fairways. He was he was so mature, and maybe we've seen this in basketball where guys in the one and done era go through some big time college like Kentucky or North Carolina or Duke or or whatever, and then they show up and they can actually contribute in the NBA. What what is different about this group now in terms of junior golf to collegiate golfers who all of a sudden what why are why are the players like Hovland and Wolf and Morikawa, Justin Saw able to Compete as quickly today as they as they seem to be
1: well um obviously they're physically gifted that that's a given yeah um th- there's two things that I like about this new group of players and and the younger players that have been coming out for the last three or four years even there's two things I really like one um they, they're, they don't have cookie cutter golf swings they have their own swings, they have confidence in their swing and they're not trying to swing like somebody else or swing like some method that some teacher told them to do. So I always find that those kinds of players, generally speaking, own their swings more so than than guys who are always trying to tinker with positions and, and technique um, based on what their coach likes to coach. So they own their swings, especially like a Matthew Wolf.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, the other side and the most important side is they come out mentally prepared to succeed. You know, there's there's only two kinds of fears in the world from my perspective, fear of failure and fear of success. Mm. And a lot of guys came, came out on tour in the 70s, 80s, even 90s, uh, you know, with with a fear of failure. Um, and and as such, they find it difficult to succeed. Um And there were even a few players who came out with a fear of success, which drove them towards failure. But these kids have got it figured out. You know, whether it's the collegiate programs or the uh, junior golf associations like the IJGA, um, you know, it's they are mentally prepared to compete at the elite level because they've been doing it already for 10 years, so even though the, they're only
0: 20 years old. So it's the winning begets winning kind of attitude. If you if you win and if you're successful at each sort of rung on the ladder, then it's just natural to keep going up the ladder. Whereas well, before, maybe that Tiger, wasn't always the Tiger case. Tiger
1: was the first one that, that made that um, fairly obvious in the sense that, you know, when he won the, the, his first uh, junior amateur, uh, yeah, the junior amateur is not a Masters. It's not a U.S. Open, whatever. But it was a Masters or a U.S. Open for Tiger at the time. For him, sure. It, it was it was as big as it could get for him at the time. And so, when you learn to win big events um, early on, then that stays with you, and and that creates a a, a level of a base camp, if you will, that you can climb up from from there when you get on the tour.
0: So. Again, Another guy who's had tremendous success um, and has won at pretty much every level, three times in terms of major championships, is Jordan Spieth. It was an odd year for Jordan. Um, Statistically, and you and I both like to look at numbers, his putting returned to great success. He putted fantastically well. And we saw inklings of that coming at the end of the previous season, the 2017-18 season. The putting was great. The ball striking numbers at the end of the year were – by his standards, bad. I mean, there's just no way to go around it. I've taken a look at the numbers. He had one of the biggest drops in strokes gained off the tee and strokes gained approach the green of any player on the PGA Tour. If you were in speech well, let me ask you this. like What, what are you expecting this coming season? And we're not going to see Jordan for a while at this point. But what are you expecting to see from Jordan Spieth? And what do you think was going through his mind as the season maybe went on?
1: Well, in in some ways, this is surprising. In some ways, it's as old as the game of golf. Um, You know, when he, he quote-unquote, lost his putting, uh, I thought it took him an abnormally long period of time to get it back. Um, When that happens, you're generally robbing from Peter to pay Paul in terms of practice time. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you spend extra time putting, extra time putting. It has to come from somewhere. Sure. And it comes from generally full swing practice. Um, and so it was fairly predictable that he might have some sort of drop off in full swing performance while he was resurrecting his putting. And, and sure enough, that's what happened. That, that being said, uh, from my perspective, um, he got into some fundamentally bad habits with his full swing that I noticed um, that I think added to his problems uh, apart from just at inadequate practice time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think his grip got a little bit weaker. And as a consequence, um, well, I, this is going to get geeky technical for a second. But
0: go there, go there.
1: When, 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 a, when, a, when a person has an open club face at the top of the backswing, they have to minimize body rotation through the hit in order to be able to maximize toe rotation, hand and forearm rotation, whatever you want to call it Mm -hmm. to get the club face squared up through the hit, right? And so um, his grip got weak weaker. It's always been weak, but it was fine for him because he had a square blade at the top. And then when he and his coach started trying to get more aggressive, try to hit it farther, get more leg work, more, more body rotation, more uh, I hate the term ground reactive force uh, in his driver. Um, you couple that with an open club face and all you've got are right to rights and left to
0: left. So um, so it, sound, it sounds it occasional... sounds like yeah it sounds like what you're saying is that the over time I'm assuming adjustments or change to his grip as you saw it just simply didn't match with the way that his body was swinging the way his body was rotating Correct. and as a result, the inconsistency, and probably the frustration then starts to, to creep in. And because he was focusing on getting the putting back, there's less time to, to maintain or to tweak up the full swing.
1: Yeah, and, and you can see the exact same, uh, in my opinion, fundamental errors with Phil Mickelson. You know, Phil, um, Phil has always had a fairly weak right hand and um, a, a slightly open club face at the top but Phil had great rotation, great hands, great timing and and he had a lot of blade rotation, you know, a foot before impact and a foot after impact. But he was able to time it, hit it pretty far and and be able to find it because his legs were what I would call passive in the golf swing,
0: right? Okay. Yep.
1: So he he went to TPI, he decided that he needed to be more aggressive with his leg action and and get ground reactive force going and all that stuff, whatever. And so now He's lost driving the golf ball.
0: Well, he's another one.
1: He'd have a hard time finding the Atlantic Ocean off a destroyer. He, I mean,
0: he, he it, was another guy that, again, running the numbers, he had the second largest. It's funny you mentioned Mickelson. He had the second largest drop in strokes gained, approach the green of any player on the PGA Tour in the season we just concluded. I mean, He had been a wonderful ball-striking year two seasons ago. And now he went to a strokes gained, approach the green average that was negative. Phil Mickelson, a Hall of Famer and a five-time, you know, major champion, you know, all of a sudden is giving away strokes to the average guy from the fairway. And I don't care how well you putt it and what kind of magical short game you have. You've said it numerous times, you know, and I've heard you say it on on the broadcast on CBS, the people who are in contention and winning on a regular basis and are putting themselves into position to win are the best putting that week of the elite ball strikers. That's the recipe for success now on the PGA Tour, is to be a great ball striker and you catch the hot putting week. And if you're giving away strokes on you know from the fairway, as Mickelson was and as Spieth did, Spieth finished with a strokes gain that was negative as well, it's really, really almost impossible to win out there.
1: Oh, yeah. And, and see, Phil, Phil went at it backwards from, from uh, Jordan in the sense that Phil went to work on his full swing and spent so much time doing that you can make a case that he didn't find enough time to practice his putting, and that's what let his putting down a little bit. Yeah, um, a year ago he putted spectacularly.
0: He now, did.
1: Um, and 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 Phil's golf swing has always been. Look, there's basically two ways to to you know, three ways to swing a club. You either swing your body or you body your swing, or you tie them together, kind of connected, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and Phil always swung his body. In other words, his his body reacted to what he did with his hands and arms and the swinging of the club head. And when he started getting aggressive and, and I would argue violent with his lower body work, they started bodying his swing. That's opposite for, for Phil. Um, and, and I think it's part and parcel of the, the downturn in his ball striking, you know? Yeah. I mean, same thing happened to tiger in his career. Tiger always used to swing his body. Uh, early on, mm-hmm. albeit very hard, and then going from one teacher to another to another he got to a point where he was bodying his swing and you can, you can see it in the evolution of his golf swing where he got got really, the, the body was so out in front and the club got stuck behind him because he was being so aggressive with the body, trying to turn, trying to drive, all that stuff, that he lost the feeling of his hand and arm swing and, and, and as luck would have it after having a back fusion, he couldn't do that anymore. He had to go back to swinging his body,
0: which actually which worked better for him. now. Yeah, which which, which 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 is yeah,
1: which is why he's striking the ball better.
0: Yeah, for sure. Hey, you mentioned you know we talked a little bit at the beginning of this conversation about schedule, and you have been with Paul Casey for a long time at this point. Have you guys talked about what the schedule is going to be like next year? I mean, Paul being. One of the best players in the world, an elite guy, is going to potentially be eyeing a Ryder Cup. It's not of the question that the Olympics could be in his future. I mean, there'll be some work there, but but it's certainly in play. I, I was speaking with and listening to so many guys talk at the Tour Championship about you know the the mental and the physical fatigue that they felt at the end of the FedEx Cup run. Uh, as we said, you know, five big events with March with the players, then the Masters, the PGA championship, the US Open and the British, and then the FedEx Cup. All those things coming in rapid succession, much, much quicker than I think a lot of people maybe anticipated. Well next year we throw the Olympics into that mix. And it's a Ryder Cup year. We're gonna be up at Whistling Straits. And a bunch of the players that we're talking about now, Dustin Johnson came off and basically sounded fried. And he recently just had arthroscopic knee surgery to clean some things up it sounds like it was fairly routine and I want to get to that in just a second but mentally he said he was fried a lot of the guys seemed really fatigued what what have you been talking with if anything at all to Paul about this is how we're gonna have to having one year of this schedule this is what we learned and maybe we need to adjust it in such and such a way in anticipation of adding the Olympics and the and the Ryder Cup
1: well Paul has has come out just recently um and stated that playing for Great Britain in the uh, in the Olympics is a goal of his. Um, Good for, for him. For a while this this summer and fall, he was he was one of the top two uh, Brits in the world ranking points mm-hmm. accumulation for the for the uh, Olympics. I think he's dropped down to third now, but uh, that's a goal for him. So when we set the schedule, um, that'll be part of it. Obviously, the majors will be part of it. And, um, we're, we're going to learn, we're going to sit down and kind of, um, debrief what he felt, you know, he he got sick, I think two or three different times this year, uh, from being, you know, having young kids, being on the road, being worn down and, and, and getting the flu. Uh, so we're going to go back and we're going to look at all of that stuff and kind of say, okay, this is where we should have taken a break. Uh, this is where we shouldn't have taken a break. Um, and we're going to try and and plot out a a schedule for next year. I do know that that coming down the end, and this was a learning experience for everybody, Paul decided to play Wyndham in Greensboro. Yeah. Um, In in part because he likes the golf course and loves the people there. In part because of the Wyndham rewards, he was ranked eighth.
0: He was a big supporter of that right right from the get-go. I remember talking to him two years ago at the Tour Championship, and he had nothing but glowing things to say about the whole concept.
1: And, and so he felt like he needed to support that tournament. The result of that was uh, he's either going to play seven weeks in a row or he had to take Northern Trust off. Well, taking Northern Trust off is what he had to do once he committed to Wyndham. But that ultimately may have cost him, um, you know, winning the, the FedEx Cup because he finished fifth yep. in the FedEx Cup without having played one of the events
0: it's so. uh it's it's going to be interesting. I mean, I didn't realize also, I mean, I, I knew that obviously he didn't play Northern Trust and he was in the mix and and you know the, the winning the overall tour championship got to be a little bit of a job because he just he started farther back. But to your point, if he plays Northern Trust and collects some more points, who knows? Maybe he starts off in second or third place, and things would have been different. I didn't realize until you just mentioned it that when you take a look at the British team, um, you could be looking at just uh, the obvious ones right now are Justin Rose, Tommy Fleetwood and Paul Casey. That's a pretty heady team. <laughs> I didn't sort of just put two and two together. Um, that's, that's going to be a really strong team. What from it, from a skill sort of set uh, look at it or vantage point, what does Paul need to do to, to take that sort of, I mean, I talked about players making the leap. He's been a, a veteran player. Does he need just a little bit of good fortune? What does he need to do in his game this off season to break through and maybe win a little bit more than he has. He has won recently. So that that's good. But, but what needs to happen for him?
1: Well, a a couple things. Um, and again, understand that Paul grew up with persimmon woods, a lot of golf ball and, uh, learning golf in the, in the eighties, early nineties, we started working in 2000. So we've been together 19 years. Um, when golf was played differently, it was played kind of Nick Faldo style. You know, you plot your way from A to B, B to C, um, and you control the golf ball, you hit fairways, you hit greens, and and consistency was rewarded, right? Yeah. But, but in today's game, uh, it took me a while to convince Paul. Uh, we started probably, I'm going to say four years ago, he was in contention to win not the FedEx Cup, but, but the Tour Championship back when they had the two events.
0: The two events, right.
1: And, and he, he laid up with a three iron off of uh, the 16th, the old 16th T, and other guys were hitting drivers down there. And, and he was hitting the four iron into the green, and they were hitting um, eight irons. And, and I showed him where his style of play wasn't going to work anymore because some week, there's one guy, or every week, there's one guy right. who goes, balls out, takes on every shot, pulls out the driver, and, and pulls them off. And he's your winner, right? Yeah. Now, you can play consistently, finish top 10, have a bunch of top 10s, make a lot of money, make a great living. But if winning is your is your goal, you can't win that way anymore. You've, you've got to play aggressively from the first tee on Thursday to the last hole on Sunday. Um, and if you're if you're on with your game, you can win. If you're not, you hope you make the cut, and then you can go ahead and still try to make a check on the weekend. So it took a while for him to change his mindset. And he's one of the top – I would argue he's one of the top five drivers of the golf ball in the world when you consider driving distance, driving accuracy, mm-hmm. control, being able to shape the shot and everything. I mean, I don't think this uh, – he's top five. and And you can look at the strokes gained over the last – couple of years, and I think that would bear that out. Now, having said that, this new schedule and conserving energy has seemed to be- become the, the theme of the year for a lot of the top players. I don't think he's practiced enough. Um, and and that's a, a byproduct of the schedule as well. So he's going to have to figure out a way to either take more weeks off and, and work on his game a little bit more yeah, to stay sharper and fresher. Mm-hmm. And then finally, um, we were having this discussion on Twitter this morning, um, where somebody said, "Uh, "You drive for show and putt for dough." And somebody said, "Well, talk to Mark Brody about that because that's not what he's found out." And I said, "Well, I coined the phrase a couple years ago that in today's game you drive for dough and you putt for more dough."
0: Yeah, I mean, it's and
1: and that's really what it is. And so he has to. He has to. um, He's made good strides in his putting improvement. So, he's got to keep it up. He's got to putt more.
0: If you take the average world ranking of the guys who finished on the PGA Tour this season, ranked in the, the the top 10 guys in strokes game putting, their average world ranking right now is in the 150s. I believe it's 157. If you take the guys who are the top 10 in strokes game approach the green, their average world ranking is 37. And the guys who are the good ball strikers, their average uh, checks just PGA Tour official money was more than double. They made $3.6 million on average, whereas the best putters made a little less than a million five. So I don't – I mean, I was not a math major at my beloved St. Lawrence University, but I know that $3.5 million is more than $1.5 million, and I'd rather have $3.5 million. So whoever still says you drive for show and you putt for dough – is, is just not paying attention to the reality I mean it's that that I think you're right mark Brody in his book um and I think it's funny like I, I think it's finally sunk in hasn't it with the guys on the tour and that's really what you're getting at with Paul is that a lot of the preconceptions and the notions that you had consistency is great but it's it's catching that week in a bottle as often as you can that's really the key to success now isn't it
1: yeah I mean the the old adage has always been. I think it's fairly still much the same. You you will make seventy five percent of your money in six weeks or less on right. the PGA Tour. Right. And and um, but now those six weeks or less, you know, need to have a couple Ws in there. Stewart, so yeah, Stuart um, Sink.
0: I, I ran into him and he basically echoed the same thing that you were talking to Paul. I, I, I saw him. This is a year or two ago. We were grabbing dinner at the same at the same spot, and he told me that he is also sort of of that generation where the the type of game that he up playing, which was the consistent game, you know, make a lot of cuts and, and keep yourself in contention or whatever. He said that he just couldn't survive out there like that anymore, that, that, that if you're playing in a field of 156 guys, three or four of them on any given week are going to play their absolute A-plus game, and they'll beat you. And if you don't play a style that will keep up with that, to your analogy, you know, when, when Paul is hitting three or four iron and somebody else is pulling driver, you'll never win. You, you can't win. The whole field isn't going to crumble, and you're going to be the consistent guy that ends up taking home the title. It's it's you have to put yourself out there. Does it for, does it take sort of a certain mentality or a willingness for, on, on the player's part to adapt like that? Because there aren't too many more players like Paul and, and Stewart and such like that who are from the generation of Persimmon and Bellotta. Like, everybody now seems to go for it. Do, do the older guys or the people who are sort of of that generation also need to have the mindset and the willingness to change or is it something else
1: no it it takes a a little effort to get the mindset to change now having said that uh, it's my belief that that like the evolution of the golf swing the evolution of the style of play on on the golf course on the PGA Tour European Tour whatever um, has always become uh, dependent upon equipment changes golf course design changes, Mm -hmm. golf course equipment changes. And now we can add, um, I golf course condition changes. Sorry. And then we can also add fitness to the equation now. Right. So as long as they keep presenting the same tests of golf, where there's not six inch rough at 320 yards that you have to hack out of, um, you're going to see the aggressive style of play. Now it's, it's, it works in reverse as well, David, because I was at the Ryder cup this year with Paul Mm -hmm. and I saw the American team having a real difficult time mentally adjusting to that golf course because um, off the fairway was dead. Right. Right. Yeah. And they couldn't hit a fairway to save their butts. And, and so they were playing from behind the whole week. The European team who had played that golf course before, felt a little bit more comfortable, they were able to adjust. And they, they were able to, to realize the importance of putting the ball in the fairway. Bomb and gouge wasn't going to work in Paris. So, you know, the style of play, the, 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 the style of, of getting around a golf course that Mark Brody um, has picked up on is, is, is what the golf course allows the players to do. Mm-hmm. what the equipment allows the players to do, what the fitness allows the players to do, right? And if you if you change one of those things, or two of them, or all three of them, then it's going to change again. You know, if if all of a sudden every week was a U.S. Open week, you wouldn't see bomb and gout. We would, we would adapt
0: guys. to, right, guys would adapt to a different correct. style that would match up and be successful with what they're presented with, right?
1: Correct. Absolutely correct. And that's why some of the most fun golf courses for me, on the PGA tour are uh, Hilton Head, Colonial, the new course well not the new course, but the, the new tournament in Detroit. Um, these are these are old style golf courses, not particularly long, where everybody can can bring their game and play and compete.
0: Well it's sort and of I like I find it
1: very, very interesting.
0: It's sort of like what Adam Scott was recently quoted as saying is that the that the people who are setting up tournaments and running events simply haven't learned that adding length isn't going to change anything, that that's not going to bother the players, making them think and making them problem solve and have to adapt their game to suit the venue, which is what you're talking about. That's well, what actually brings out the challenge. And, and I know that a bunch of players have, I mean, not a bunch, but several players have, have noted that, that it almost gets mundane and somewhat boring. If, if you play the same style again and again, and it's just like, okay, get another 315, 320 yards down the fairway, hack it out with a nine iron from wherever you are, and try and make a birdie pot. And that's sort of the recipe for success. I the, I look at courses like Firestone, where we don't go anymore, unfortunately, as sort of the prototypical version of that. To some degree, you mentioned earlier, Torrey Pines is is like that. It's a big ballpark Um depending on how it's set up and what the weather conditions are like, Beth page is that way. But you know, you're talking about Hilton head and colonial to some degree for those people who are listening, you know, who remember Westchester country club was another one, lots of twists and turns, little greens, positional golf, which I would imagine for a lot of the players, they all love coming back to the Met area when there's an event, for example, like there was at Liberty national well, Sunday, Monday, and sometimes on Tuesday, you'll catch a lot of those guys heading over to places like Somerset Hills or heading out onto Long Island and playing out uh, you know, on Route 27, pick your poison. I mean, National, Sabonic, Maidstone, Friarset, all these classic sort of tracks um, because they love playing that. There's a joy of problem-solving. And it sounds like, in your opinion, and, and, and the general feeling is that that is missing from the PGA tour and it sort of then sets up certain types of players who get so into almost like a, a mental or a game rut where you lose your ability to adapt.
1: Well, okay. You you, you know, when you, when you look at, at the, the style of play that we have today, um, it's, it's really easy to be overly simplistic and, and overly reactionary and blame it on the golf ball. Everybody wants to blame it on the golf ball. Right. Well, the golf ball is a part of the issue. So is the driver. So are the new irons. Uh, so are the lightweight shafts. So is the golf course architecture.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Architects, when, when the ball started going farther in 2000, that the, that the players were, were using, architects had a knee-jerk reaction to make the golf course longer. That was completely the wrong decision to be made. Mm-hmm. When they made golf courses longer, guys figured out how to hit it farther. And, and so architecture, golf course conditioning, Growing of rough, putting, growing rough around bunkers so that the ball would never get in a bunker. That was stupid. You know, <laughs> let the ball run into a bunker. Yeah. Um, so I, there's a lot of blame to go around for why we're playing the way we're playing right now.
0: To some degree, Peter. Some it, people it, it, love
1: it, some people don't.
0: Yeah, it's it reminds me, one of my favorite finishing holes that nobody really talks about on the PGA Tour is the 18th at Quill Hollow. So every year when we go back for Wells Fargo, Players come off 17, which is a peninsula green, and it's it's visually intimidating. Guys are thrilled to just walk away with three and say thank you very much goodbye. But when guys on Sunday end up having to sort of sit there and they look at this long, slightly downhill par four that bends off to the left at not quite a 90 degree angle, but but pretty close. Invariably, guys either hit driver and go through the fairway because they get, they just don't seem to turn it enough, or they take three wood. They overcook it, and there's a creek that runs runs down the length of the left side. And every year we see somebody that's either in contention or late who finds the water over there. It's not the length of that hole. It's the problem that that hole presents to the players. You can hit driver, but if you're going to do that and you hit it straight, you're going to go through the fairway into a tree or into thick rough, and now you've got a problem. Or you're going to have to turn it in such a way that a lot of guys don't like hitting driver and hitting a high draw it's It's just not the way that they're built you can hit the three wood, but then you're going to be coming back so to to what you're talking about it's it's not the length guys it's not stretching the golf courses out it's it's putting in some twists and some turns and forcing players to think and maybe be a little bit uncomfortable
1: well I mean again going back to architecture there's only two components to to a golf shot there's mm-hmm. there's distance and direction right mm-hmm and uh, I think that there are some shots in, in a round of golf that should simply test your distance capabilities. There are some shots that should simply test your directional capabilities. But I think the great golf courses test distance and direction simultaneously more often than not. Seth Raynor had it right. Uh, his, his original, one of his template holes was the cape hole, which is kind of like it bends around uh, water in his case. Um, and you had to pick a line, and then you had to pick a club for that line, so you didn't go in the water or through the fairway into the rough. And then, if you didn't execute the line or you didn't execute, the, pick the right club, you're in trouble. Yeah. So you, you, it, it's a difficult shot in the sense that you have to control both the distance and the direction. But until we get more uh, holes like that. Mm-hmm you're not going to see players playing strategic golf anymore.
0: So one of the things that's going to happen this offseason, probably in November or maybe early December, but but certainly by the end of the year, is that the USGA and the RNA are expected to release the findings of a, the distance report and basically all the research gathering that they've gotten. We're, we're not expecting, I'd be shocked, if we heard any quote-unquote solutions or changes that are going to come about. The, the, the whole objective of the report was to determine the effect of distance broadly speaking on the game, not just the elite stuff that we watch on television, but the game as a whole that everybody plays. Um, you've watched a lot of golf. We've talked about stuff. Is is there a distance problem in your mind with golf?
1: Well, um, I I think that the, the numbers will show that the average driving distance on the PGA tour went down a yard or two this year. It did. Um, as compared to previous years. So, um, I think that, that I think the golf ball has pretty much leveled out. Uh, I think a lot of the discrepancies in, uh, in average driving distance are, are weather-related, golf course condition-related, a lot of rain mm-hmm. this year, so the golf courses are going to play longer. Um, you know, a couple of years ago we went from Oakmont in the U.S. Open, and then we went to Wisconsin, uh, for the U.S. Open the following year uh, at uh, Aaron Hills for a different golf course entirely, and there was almost a twenty-yard differential right. in how far guys drove the ball, right. and that that accounted for almost twenty-five percent of the total distance gain on the PGA Tour that year. So I, I thought you know, we the would, golf courses that yeah. you pick make a make a huge difference. I
0: thought right? that we I thought that we would see sort of not to interrupt you, but I thought that we would see that jump when we went from Bell Reve last year, August in St. Louis, to. Relatively speaking, cool and certainly damp conditions at Beth Page this year. The driving average ended up being about the same. I think that it was down PGA Championship to PGA Championship, um, about a yard. But but yeah. ple- please continue. Yeah, I mean, th- there's weather variance. There's other variances that go from year to year, and we've we've had that. Um, but broadly speaking, then you don't. It doesn't sound like you're of the opinion that we really have a problem, at least at the elite level, with with distance. Is that? Am I making a correct assumption there?
1: Well, I mean, it, it, it is what it is right now, and and um, I, I really don't like the idea of, of complete bifurcation
0: mm-hmm. because
1: I think one of the one of the utopian aspects of golf is that you know you can compete with the same equipment as the players, uh, the same golf balls, players, um, and and remark about how wonderfully they play the game compared to you uh, when you play on the same golf courses right so I, I would hate to see that um there's there's a lot of stuff going on i mean i've got a new set of irons from Titleist, and um now now with this uh these hollow irons that look just like an old forging but they perform differently and and i'm a club longer with my irons yep and full um, dis- full disclosure to, to everybody
0: to to who's, who's who's listening to this, Peter is is a, is an endorser of Titleist. So I don't want people to be calling in about this, this or that. But but you've been you know you've been with Titleist for for several years now, correct?
1: Yeah, thirty years I've been with them. Yeah. yeah. So and but, that's but, but the and, evolution of, yeah, of and, equipment. There's a couple different ways to to, to talk about distance. I mean, yep. or make yourself feel like you're hitting it farther. One is to physically hit it farther, right? Right. Swing um, faster. You gain ten yards off the tee. The other is to hit a shorter iron into the green. If you, if you used to hit driver and six iron to the first hole, and now you're hitting driver seven iron to the first hole, even though your drive is in the same place it always has been, you feel like you're hitting it farther, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I think there's going to be a lot of uh, changes in the next few years uh, with, with players eventually moving away from, you know, the, the traditional muscle back clubs. And, and I mean, these clubs have to get the ball up in the air more, whatever it's going to become even more point and shoot it's
0: it's so. it, the technology and the people the brain power behind golf equipment not just the ball and not just clubs but but the whole package shafts you know um there's a lot of brain power and a lot of people building better mousetraps and i've talked with many of them uh as someone who also obviously writes about equipment for golf week and golfweek.com it's um I don't know that there is Peter, unless like they do a major rollback of the ball, which I think would be really detrimental to the recreational players' game. Um, and I think that there's other things that would involve it. It's you. I don't think you can change the driver to such where it's like, okay, well, we're going to make the longest club in your bag that's not a putter it has got to be, you know, forty-two inches, or you know, the, the something with the the driver. I've talked to guys who basically said, look, if we can make a three wood that in an elite player's hands will still go 300 yards and we can, because we see it all the time. Like, Oh, look at Dustin Johnson or Jason day or Rory McIlroy hit three wood. And all of a sudden the ball is just absolutely shot out of a cannon that would hurt recreational players where there really isn't a, a distance with their driver problem that, that I'm aware of, but it would, it wouldn't alleviate the problem perceived that I don't think you can change the clubs. I haven't heard a solution. Maybe there's one out there, but I, I haven't heard it. Um, it's going to be very. Well, I keep hearing.
1: I yeah. keep hearing this argument that the ball's going so far, the guys are hitting it so far that it, it, it requires more land to build golf courses. It requires more mm-hmm. uh, maintenance to maintain that land and whatever. And yet, I go around the country, and I get to play at other golf courses, very very nice golf courses. Um, yeah, you do. You know, whether we're in <laughs> Greensboro or Dallas or wherever, and and I don't see. I don't even see five percent of the members go into the back tees no
0: no of course not nobody plays there
1: there's no need to build those golf courses that that long and that big and whatever except for ego yeah the ego of the owners the ego of the architect um build good old-fashioned uh 6,800 maybe 7,000 yard golf courses and uh i tell you what it's a lot more fun to play it really is.
0: Well, I can tell you, you're and, not gonna and, you're not gonna find me back at the tips. Yeah, you're you're not gonna find me back at the tips. I can assure you of that. Um, sixty five, sixty six hundred yards for me is fun golf. It's it's club appropriate into greens, and that's that's the way it's supposed to be. Um, now I I hate to even bring up this subject. I know it's a touchy subject with you, but uh, as we're getting ready to conclude, I have to ask you about your Red Sox. Um, so my father-in-law being here in Connecticut, it's funny, like we live in a little town that's right on the line where Yankees Red Sox sort of split and Giants Patriots sort of split. He is a Red Sox Giants, New York Giants football fan, which there aren't too many of those around. What's the deal with the Sox? He's, he has been moping since June. I would imagine this is a touchy subject around the Costas household. What are you looking for from your Sox this off season?
1: Well, okay. Full disclosure, when I was growing up, um, all I had, I had the Red Sox growing up in Maine. Right. And the only football team, the nearest football team, was the New York Giants.
0: Really? So don't tell me. Back in the day
1: when, uh, you know, okay, I'm dating myself now, but hell, I'm in in my 70s. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: Y.A. Tittle was the quarterback. You know, Frank Gifford played for them. Uh And the Giants were my team. And and then along came uh, the AFL and the Boston Patriots that morphed into the new England Patriots and they became my team because obviously I'm a new Englander. New Englander sure. So I understand where your father's coming from.
0: It's uh... now having
1: said that, <laughs> yeah. um, the, the Yankees are, are playing some spectacular baseball this year, almost as good as what the Red Sox played last year.
0: Zing um, applied. And, <laughs> yep.
1: And, and in terms of the Red Sox, uh, I, I think it's all about pitching. Um, they, they, their big name pitchers needed to pitch better. And I think they need some help in the bullpen. So I hope they address that in the off season. Um, and then I, I really want the Red Sox Yankees rivalry to come back again. That's fun. You know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's fun. It's good stuff. You know, I've got some, I got some Yankee fans on the CBS crew and, and, you know, we go in and we start chirping when the Red Sox win and they chirp when the Yankees win and it's a blast. It's fun. It's all in good fun, um, and and for you know pretty much the entire century, this century, you know there hasn't been a hell of a lot of a rivalry there.
0: No, it's so been I'm, one I'm or the happy other. the Yankees. Yeah. 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 It's been one uh, of the well, other. Well,
1: the Red Sox have won way more this century than the Yankees. I gotta <laughs> say that. But, of course. But anyway, <laughs> so
0: if I set so if I set the Patriot line for wins this season at uh, at eleven and a half, you taking the over the under? taking the over uh i think
1: they're gonna win 12
0: yeah yeah well i mean now with the dolphins that's two wins because they're tanking and you play buffalo twice and the jets twice i mean so maybe you slip in one of those i mean so that's yeah that's it's good times it's good times so peter what's uh when do you anticipate heading out of the state of maine and back to uh sunny lovely arizona
1: probably around the first of october um it's a perfect time to transition um so we'll go back. I'll, I'll start uh, teaching full-time and in, in, in playing with the boys back at Whisper Rock
0: mm-hmm. in,
1: uh, in Scottsdale and uh, get ready for January in San Diego.
0: Starting the itch, I was going to say. You, you, you put down the champagne glasses uh, on New Year's and you start taking a look and booking some plane tickets for that shuttle to San Diego. You'll be all set. Peter, I really appreciate you giving me this much time. It's fun as always, and uh, I'll look forward to talking to you again real soon.
1: Double B, always a pleasure.